Welcome again to the 2023 MMM 40 Under 40 Awards. Hey, it's Mark. We hope everyone enjoyed a restful President's Day weekend. The MMM team headed into the long weekend on a high note after last week's 40 Under 40 program. I can think of no better way to kick off our 2023 event slate than by celebrating the wealth of accomplished young talent working in and around medical marketing. I'll have a recap from the content portion of the 40 Under 40 program, which featured talks on how millennial managers are building the life sciences workplace of the future, as well as utilizing AI to craft personalized brand experiences for HCPs. It was also a busy week on the policy front. Lesha, what's on tap for your health policy update? Hey, Mark. Today, I'll give a rundown of Moderna announcing it would keep its COVID-19 vaccine free for uninsured Americans shortly after Bernie Sanders asked the company to testify over its plan to hike up vaccine prices to more than $100 per dose. Yes, that was quite an about face. And speaking of the COVID vaccines, the shots have certainly endured their share of controversy. Jack's here to tell us about the latest on social media. Jack? Yeah, today we'll be talking about a recent viral tweet about a Boise, Idaho pharmacist at Rite Aid who intentionally canceled an immunocompromised patient's COVID-19 booster appointment. I'm Mark Iskowitz, Editor-at-Large, and welcome to the MMM Podcast, medical marketing media's show about healthcare marketing writ large. MMM's 40 Under 40 list, which readers can view on our website, mmm-online.com, includes individuals from all facets of the life sciences industry, from biopharma and medtech to in-house and agency. We drew on several of these young professionals for a session, which Lesha moderated, on workplace culture. I was struck by the notion, which I believe was first observed by the Harvard Business Review, that this is the first time in history that we have five generations in the workplace, making for some unique but challenging organizational dynamics. After their session, I caught up with a few of these millennial managers to ask how they're embracing the opportunity to shape the life sciences workplace of the future and prioritizing inclusivity in this multi-generational workplace. Maybe if you could just start out by giving us your full name and title. It would be sure. My name is Kishan Kumar. I am a director of marketing strategy, leading the women's and breast cancer franchise at Navarro's Pharmaceuticals. I'm Amanda Scott, and I'm the associate director of marketing for Advanced Technology IOL's Alcon Vision. Jamie Bull, I'm associate director of consumer digital marketing at Takeda. Really enjoyed your panel discussion about um, workplace culture uh, here at 40 Under 40. And, uh, but I wanted to follow up on one concept in particular, and that was this idea of the millennial manager, yeah. uh, which is something that I know was referenced in uh, HBR and in TED Talks. Yep. Basically, what I wanted to know is in, in terms of this being a, a multi-generational workforce now, it's the first time in history where we have five generations in the workforce. How are you embracing being a millennial manager and, yeah. and that opportunity to create the workforce that you see fit for the future? Yeah, that's absolutely that's exactly it, actually. I think it's a really incredible opportunity for us to manage up and down within a multi-generational environment. I uniquely have an opportunity to manage somebody who is 12 years younger than me and somebody that is almost 12 years older than me, right? And so we have, uh, we're all three of us are at very different stages of our, our lives. Our priorities from a family standpoint are very different, but we all share the same uh 
professional purpose, which is helping people see brilliantly through changing their lives through cataract surgery. And so we have a shared mission uh, and a shared purpose, but it's, you have to be really intentional with the way that you work with teams when they have uh, different expectations for what their career is going to look like. Their runway may be different lengths. And so managing uh, those expectations while continuing to drive our business objectives and ultimately uh, talking to our customers in a way that's consistent and allows us to continue to uh, to drive growth for Outcome Labs. This concept of Millennial Manager was uh, it was more of an evolved one. It was not a point of time where there was this one pivotal moment where you realized you were a Millennial Manager. I think the pandemic sort of triggered that quite a bit. Just the appreciation for there are different preferences across different cohorts or generations. As you referenced, there are five different generations from the boomers all the way through the, now the Gen Zs. But to, to your specific questions on how I embrace it, I think being a little bit more conscious when you're as a manager or as a leader, when you're making decisions or driving rules uh, for the company or for the team or for the organization, um, getting a true appreciation for how it lands across people um, and unless you do it explicitly having that conscious attempt to understand what it means and how it what it means for a boomer and what it means for a Gen Z individual um, and sometimes you may not fall on the right end of the spectrum but at least recognizing that um, I think would be would be key and I try to in uh, the decision making that I do that keep that in mind it, mm -hmm. it may include coming to the office certain days a week or a happy hour that everyone goes to at the end of work so mm -hmm. at across all spectrums having this appreciation for how it fits across generations being more mindful and conscious of it would, would certainly help yeah the way that i think about it it's really acknowledging the history of the millennial generation going from experiencing 9-11 to the Great Recession to COVID sort of disruption is sort of part of our entire work career. There's not necessarily mm -hmm. the expectation or understanding or even the experience of stability. So um, as millennial managers sort of come up in the corporate world, there's the opportunity to sort of have that corporate version of the, the sandwich generation, sort of working with above and below and, and alongside multiple generations and sort of the understanding that all of these different generations have different expectations, different working styles, and sort of the need for that flexibility and fluidity is for a lot of sort of that millennial manager. Um, a lot of people are, from my perspective, are finding that sort of second nature and, and uh, not necessarily coming with the same friction that others might, just because just the, the historical perspective and the right. um, things that the millennials have experienced over their working careers. Absolutely right. You've um, hit, really hit the nail on the head in terms of the being accustomed to working in a very um, dynamic atmosphere. Uh, you have to be agile and you have yeah. to be used to disruption. It's, yeah. it's, it's been nothing but not disruptive over the yeah. last few years, right? It's so. the exact opposite of sort of starting at one company, working there until you're ready to get your watch and your pension and sort of ship off. So right. it's on the, the far end of that spectrum. So Yeah, um. what happened to that gold watch? I never got that. <laughs> you mentioned uh, during the panel also that um, during the pandemic, when you were working from home, you know, it was dogs, it was yeah. kids. 
kids yep. yeah. and you got to know your colleagues, not just as co-workers, but as human beings. Yeah. Um, so that, that I, was an interesting wrinkle Yes, there. I love that. Um, one of the uh, unique benefits, I would say, of the COVID pandemic amongst a lot of uh, downsides was this idea that working virtually and giving us the opportunity to work from home uh, really humanized us in the sense that if we uh, were looking behind the scenes in those little WebEx or Zoom windows, we saw people's life at play and we saw when they got a new puppy or when they had a toddler in the screen, one of my colleagues' parents moved in with them during the pandemic. And so this opportunity to not just see ourselves as Alcon associates, but Alcon associates that have lives and priorities beyond the work that we're doing day in and day out sure. uh, really allowed me to even uh, identify as more than just a brand manager at the time. And we all could sort of see each other differently and appreciate each other differently. I think the present day CEOs, especially of big companies, leave alone pharma, just every company has arguably the toughest job in history. Right, just uh, that there's a new dimension of thinking that the earlier folks did not have to. Um, I mean, go into the office. I mean, I, I grew up watching my dad leave home at seven, come back at six. Nobody even questioned that. And right. now this new dimension of should I even go to work when I get my work done? And you know, there's this argument around productivity, and I'm not in the office. I mean, these are hard to counter. So when you are, let's say, in, in our case, a Fortune 50 CEO. Uh, those are not easy decisions to make across countries, across teams, across generations. And so I'm, I'm certainly not envious of their roles right now, but uh, but I think it is something to to witness and, and to find a good rhythm. Uh, the good news is that people in their own ways have found their version of the new normal. Mm -hmm. uh, there isn't a version of new normal and and the feedback is pretty instant. So you kind of know if you set a policy, how it lands, uh, be it a leading metric like a survey or a lagging metric like attrition. Um, these are immediate feedback terms and, and um, I think there's no shame in admitting even our company have, have tried a few options and I think we're close to finding what new normal looks like for us. Yeah, yeah. Uh, another concept I wanted to follow up on from your excellent panel was the uh, concept of inclusivity and what that means to you, how you incorporate that into your role um, at Takeda in terms of how you manage teams and how you manage agencies. Sure. The way I like to think about it is at the individual level. For teams that I've managed, really understanding what motivates them, how they like to work, their specific communication style. I think it, it, it opens up the opportunity for a deeper level of understanding and how do you help motivate those individuals how do you figure out the best working style to be able to make sure that you're effectively communicating information across teams, whether that's internally or externally with agencies that are supporting some of the work. Uh, so really getting to know them at a different level, not necessarily just what what is their bandwidth, what is their project um, workload look like, um, sort of what's their skills and experience, um, but getting to know them at sort of that deeper level on sort of what motivates them, what's their sort of thought process, what's their most efficient communication style. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And so that really opens up the door to be able to have deeper conversations and a deeper level of understanding at the manager level about what sort of good employee relationships look like. I think one of the things that I'm really mindful of, particularly with the generational differences that we have in our organization is uh, we all 
have different ideas of what inclusivity should look like, uh, new school versus old school at Alcon. We have this really unique culture that um, we have a ton of tenure in our company, which is incredible. We celebrate 25, 30, 35, 40 year anniversaries, which creates a lot of consistency in the way that we think, which can be a good thing, but it also has its downsides, right? And so one of the things as a millennial manager that I'm really intentional about is challenging those thought processes. And when we are challenging those thought processes, articulating why we're doing it so we can all start thinking about things a little bit differently and challenging my team to be comfortable getting a little bit uncomfortable, right? And it's okay to acknowledge that, you know, it might be time for us to think things things through um, in a new thought process or approach Mm -hmm. things differently, whether it's uh, hiring talent for a brochure or bringing on new talent from an acquisition standpoint onto our team. Yeah. One thing you said that stood out to me was that you said when you um, operationalize inclusivity, you say, I'm doing this because I want to be more inclusive. How important is that to vocalize as a manager? It's incredibly important. I think we have to practice what we preach. We have to model what we want to see in the culture that we're trying to build as millennial managers. And so articulating things as simple as... I am going to give this feedback to this agency because I think that the talent that they uh, recommended to us isn't inclusive enough. Or I am uh-huh. going to recommend that you do this because I feel like you need to challenge your thought process so uh-huh. that everybody in the room can hear the why behind yeah. the, the what. Right. And um, is that something that you find yourself doing a lot with your agency partners, for instance? Absolutely. We also yeah. benefit from long-term agency relationships, which sometimes can get us stuck in our ways, right? And so sure, this idea sure. of, uh, you know, we, we mark products for cataract surgery and it shouldn't be any surprise to those of us um, in the medical industry that it's not just uh, white men in their 60s that get cataract surgery. So this idea of continuing to challenge our agencies to find the right stock photography or the right talent or the right uh, patients for testimonial videos that actually reflect the true population of the patients that we're trying to serve is really paramount to our continued success. Once again, I, I want to point to the pandemic because there are so many new um, events. Um, I, I'd even say so many unfortunate events that transpired over the pandemic that forced people to think differently mm-hmm. and, and act differently. And and I want to be careful when I use the word inclusivity where people, and I think I made this point in the pandemic uh, or the, on the panel as well, diversity often just not just go points to race or religion or culture, right? It's it's diversity in function, diversity in thinking. And I specifically say function because it's no secret, Novartis went through a, a massive transformation uh, in the industry. And, and this new model that we're living and, and, and enables that and, and sort of embraces that you know, there's value to different thought leaders across different functions, uh, across personality types, across uh, generations, across uh, genders, so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so to your question around how I incorporate it, um, once again, my answer is just being more mindful. Um, mm-hmm. I, you know, I have this one person in my team, you know, uh, who who often who made it very clear right in, in, in the beginning that, you know, they... they kind of don't want to be put on the spot you know i had this tendency to you know ask for feedback um you know in team meetings and you know um and i appreciated that a lot and i believe it was um another lady to my left on the panel um who made this good point on asking people what good looks like for them yeah right i thought that was that's my take-home message right right. um i think how do you want to be recognized i have my version of what good looks like Right. Uh-huh. Again, pointing to the HBR articles or the TED Talks or the Adam mm-hmm. Grant podcasts. Uh, but my version of what good looks like, 
did not fit what this person's version of what good looks like. Mm-hmm. So this sure. inclusivity again is, I think it's more personal. It's custom, and I think um, you, you you model that behavior by living it. Right, right. Okay, terrific. Well, this has been fascinating. Thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate Thanks so much it. for having me. Appreciate it. it. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me. Speaking of the workplace today, with staffers far and wide questioning, what do I want out of work? And if they're in the right place, how can I best contribute? Jack moderated a very timely panel with three senior marketers from ConnectiveRx, Joey Cohen, VP Client Solutions, Chris Dowd, SVP Market Development, and Ian Osilka, SVP Client Solutions. And I'll hand it over to Jack. To round out the introductory panels of the 40 Under 40, I got to speak with some experts from ConnectiveRx about the career trajectories of all three of them, all three of them from different generations and with different backgrounds of coming into the healthcare space. And it was a really intriguing conversation, at times very candid in terms of expectations for leadership, responsibility, what you bring to marketing, what you bring to the healthcare industry, and certainly what you should be looking for in terms of advancing your career. We got to talk a lot about the different personnel challenges that are facing organizations now is we're definitely in the in the throes of the great resignation and different labor market forces. But we also got to talk about what individuals can do to maximize their potential and definitely bring the most to different organizations in and around the life sciences industry. We all don't wake up every day with innovative ideas. We always have to work with each other, making sure that what we're doing is right for our patients, for our doctors, for our pharmacists. I mean, you have to work with your teams. You have to poke holes at things. You have to make sure that what you're doing is proper right, HIPAA compliant, making sure that you're not just in a space that you're promoting all the time. You're giving them information that they need, they want, they deserve. The patients alone, I mean, even sending out an SMS message, you got to make sure that what you're sending them, they're not just going to open and then just hit stop. You got to keep driving to them. You got to keep making sure that what they need with their copay, their hub services, their coupons, anything. You got to make sure that it's clinical in nature, building strategies out, building out the right data points, making sure you're showing what success is to your clients. That's what's innovative. For me, what's been really exciting in innovation, particularly in my space, has been this paradigm shift to finally treat patients like people, right? Uh, for the longest time, interacting in my particular space, the patient interaction was eight to eight, Monday through Friday, can't get a hold of us, leave a voicemail. I mean, what a way to miss the mark for so many years, right? Um, and you think about, you know, finally the realization that people with life-altering diagnoses are sitting in rooms like this. They can't take a phone call, although maybe you do want to get up and take one right now with the content that we have here. But, you know, or you're a, you're, you're a mom and rheumatoid, you need your rheumatoid arthritis medication and you're painfully holding the steering wheel with three kids in the car. I'm not going to take that call right now. So what I've been most excited about is that patient centricity, looking at things like self-service tools, uh, digital communications with patients, giving them more 365, uh, 24-7 self-service options to to make this process easier. Because it, it, at the end of the day, that to your point, that was the whole reason that we all started where we, where we are today. It's the whole reason why this industry exists, at least, you know, and particularly my specific industry, is to help patients get on medication. And so that's been probably the most exciting thing over the past few years. Yeah, I... Uh... I'm going to throw out launch because launches are exciting. And, you know, this is a little bit of a career discussion, right? Because we're from three different generations and all that. I'm the old guy. But I would say, you know, a launch is um, a whole new learning experience. So if anybody has not done a launch, you're working on the brand, whether you're an agency, pharma company, whatever, but you haven't done a launch, you have to do a launch. 
It's riskier. I've had people that worked on big brands that they went on a launch and the launch failed. It was, a, it was a bad product, not a great product. And they probably regretted leaving that big brand. So there's risk involved. But the launch energy, the ability to innovate, the ability to try something new is really life-changing, you know? So um, what, get, what still gets me excited is when we're working with a client that they are launching. It's like, all right, tell me all about the launch. What's happening? Where are you? What's your plan so far? Uh, there's a lot to talk about and there's a lot to, to do. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's exciting. So, you know. Uh, it's scary, and uh, everybody's on the, on the edge, and the clients get really, you know, aggravated. <laughs> so it's it's high intensity, but you know, it's it's um, can be rewarding. I know we've already gone through the advice segment, but if there's anything else you wanted to pass along, I mean, you're the oldest. Give us the stage. The Give us the yes, stage right. uh, Time goes really fast. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe how I've done basically five companies, um, and it's a blur. You know, it's a blur. Um, in terms of the people I've spent time with and everything else. So enjoy the moment of who you're working with and uh, get the most out of your current position. That was the other thing I was going to add on advice is that that next job isn't always, you know, some other company, right? It, please look within your current company for that opportunity uh, because that that's some, there's a lot to learn under the same roof, you know, so I didn't want to send the wrong message of, you know, you got to go out try something new and, you know, and, and put your whole life into turmoil. Sometimes it's closer to home where that next job is, that next position. You just gotta push the corners a little bit, you know, and see what's out there, even under your own roof. I'd go even a step further. Sometimes it's not even in the same company, it's in the same department that you're in, yeah. right? I yeah. mean, a lot of times it could be the job that you're in. Uh, so a, a lot of times we think innovation, we think to be innovative, I have to go to a new company, I have to go to a new role. Um, but but a lot of times it's just challenging yourself and, and just taking a look at, you know, let, let's just, let's pull process flows out. Let's pull, you know, let's pull schemas out. Let's look at things. What's stale, you know, and, and maybe, you know, and stale doesn't mean that, it, you know, working, leave alone, right? But, but find those areas where, I mean, you can be innovative in the role that you have today. You don't necessarily have to, have to make that leap to, uh, to a different, uh, to a different spot. And even with being in the same company, the same department, and even like restructuring, if you can restructure, it's not a bad thing all the time. Look for the diamond in the rough. Opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. I also caught up with the speakers on another panel of the afternoon, which was a case study involving Acuvia, Lasso, CMI, and IBM Watson, in which the four partnered on an AI-driven campaign to craft personalized brand experiences for healthcare providers. We'll get to that a bit later in the podcast after Lesha and Jack segments. Health Policy Update with Lesha Bouchak. Last week, Moderna said that its COVID-19 vaccine will remain free for underinsured or uninsured Americans as part of a new patient assistance program it wants to roll out to make sure everyone has access to the vaccine. The company originally planned to increase the price of its vaccine from about $26 per dose to up to $130 per dose after the federal government stops buying vaccines once the public health emergency ends in May. But it appears Moderna has changed its tune shortly after Senator Bernie Sanders asked the company to testify in front of a Senate committee about those planned price increases. Sanders heads an influential Senate panel, the Health, Education, Labor and Pensions Committee, which has made fighting the so-called greed of pharma companies one of its top priorities. Sanders called Moderna's shift, quote, an amazing coincidence that happened the same exact day we announced that we were inviting them to testify. 
Moderna didn't explain how the patient assistance program would work, but noted in a statement that everyone in the United States will have access to Moderna's COVID-19 vaccine, regardless of their ability to pay. Sanders has called out the pharma industry over high prescription drug prices and noted addressing that issue will be his top priority as head of the HELP committee moving forward. I'm Lesha Bouchak, senior reporter at MM&M. Social media, Instagram, TikTok, TikTok, Twitter, YouTube, social media update. And this is the part of the broadcast when we welcome Jack O'Brien to tell us what's trending on healthcare social media. Hey, Jack. Hi, Mark. So as I mentioned earlier in the show, a viral tweet from earlier this month got traction last week in terms of coverage from the Idaho statesman. And the upshot of the story is that a gentleman by the name of Dan Berger went to Rite Aid in Boise, Idaho to get a COVID booster shot. He was going on a three-week trip to South America, and his doctor had advised him to get a COVID booster shot because he suffers from psoriatic arthritis. He goes and books his appointment, and just before he goes there, he finds out that his appointment was canceled. And he thinks it's some sort of glitch. So he rebooks his appointment, goes there, and the person working the desk at Rite Aid, a woman by the name of Amy, doesn't go by any last name in the story, says that she had canceled his appointment because she has an objection to administering the COVID-19 vaccines. He asks questions. She says that she'll call around to the different Rite Aids in the area to try and book him an appointment to get this booster shot before he's supposed to leave for South America later in the week. After trying to work with Rite Aid and trying to get answers out of them. Berger ultimately goes to Albertsons, another pharmacy in town, and gets his booster shot there. But that's not where it ends. He reaches out to the Rite Aid in that area and tries to get answers. He ends up writing a letter to Rite Aid's CEO, basically expressing his frustrations and trying to understand why he wasn't administered a COVID-19 vaccine and also why Amy, this pharmacist in question, was still employed by Rite Aid given how the incident unfolded. It's led to a number of conversations about people who have whatever they consider a religious or moral objection to the COVID-19 vaccine administering it. Rite Aid had said in the reporting from the Idaho statesman that um, this person is typically not in client-facing roles or customer-facing roles because of their objections to the COVID-19 vaccine. And it kind of echoed a little bit to what we saw after the overturning of Roe v. Wade last year, where there were different stories and anecdotes about people not being able to access reproductive health care or abortion medicine at Walgreens or different pharmacies due to issues around um, administering those. So it was an interesting thing. The tweet went viral. Um, Like I said, this person had written a letter to Right Aid CEO and kind of a, a calamitous little PR instance, but I was curious what both you, uh, Mark and Lesha, had thoughts on this story, just because it's been floating around the past few days. Yeah, I mean, um, it's a really interesting story. Um, and uh, as we said at the top of the broadcast, you know, the, the COVID vaccines have certainly endured, you know, their share of, of controversy. Uh, on social. So this is just the latest. Usually you hear about um, conscientious objections uh, with regard to uh, the abortion uh, pills, uh, but not necessarily uh, with regard to um, the boosters. But, uh, you know, to me, it also calls to mind, you know, the highlight or highlights, you know, the struggles that the retail pharmacies have been under. There's been uh, a lot of uh, press about how they're transforming their traditional business model. There was a, a recent profile of uh, Rosalind Brewer, who's about a year into her tenure as CEO of Walgreens Boots Alliance, uh, and how she's really been taking a hard look at the company's retail footprint. She's been closing underperforming stores, and the 
you know, she's sort of overseeing this takeover of a village MD to um, kind of attach the walk-in clinics to the pharmacies uh, in, in hopes that uh, more people will choose to get their prescriptions uh, from a Walgreens rather than go elsewhere. And uh, so obviously they're under a lot of pressure um, and, and this doesn't help. <laughs> Yeah, I, I sort of um, am echoing Mark on that. I do think it's emblematic of a, of a bigger issue, as he pointed out. CVS Health has noted it's planning to cut hours. That's two-thirds of its 9,000 locations by March because of these like staffing shortages they're facing. Uh, Walmart is also planning to cut hours at many of its stores. Um, there's been reports of pharmacist burnout and stress, which got much worse, obviously, during the COVID-19 pandemic. So it's interesting. This is one example of, of a ripple effect of that larger issue. I also think there's like some interesting like legal implications of this, too. Um, it kind of poses the question is, you know, are these retail pharmacies allowed to fire employees who claim these conscientious objections to distributing vaccines to people who chose to get a vaccine? Um, I believe in 2015, Walgreens fired an employee and a judge ruled that that was okay to do for that reason. Um, but it'd be interesting to see what happens with this. Absolutely. And even just the the ripple effects that you talk about on an individual level, like Berger says in this reporting from the Idaho Statesman that he plans on moving his prescriptions over to a different pharmacy. And, you know, that's only to say that it's one person, but it's also mm-hmm. to say that if that were to happen to other people, you know, I don't know how, how patient other people would be is certainly if they're expecting to just go in there, receive their medical care, which I know a lot of these institutions are trying to position themselves as these kind of one-stop shops. I don't know. It's, it's certainly something to keep an eye on. And it's certainly a lot less fun than talking about the last of us last week. So... <laughs> <laughs> Now back to a recap of the case study that was featured at 40 Under 40 about an AI-powered campaign that helped healthcare marketers to better personalize uh, outreach to healthcare professionals. There were four speakers on this panel, and I caught up with each of them separately to delineate you know, each of the different facets of this really interesting effort. First, I talked with uh, Cliff Covey of CMI, who was actually the media partner on this campaign to kind of set it up, talk about the significance um, and what they were trying to accomplish. Yeah, we just had a great conversation about personalization in media, um, really about how, especially in the HCP space, where there's a limited number of, of our target audience, um, really creating more meaningful and personalized connections. Uh, we had a case study for a pilot that we ran over the past year. Um, With a real pharma client? A real pharma client, yeah. Um, and uh, um, it, was, it was especially important for this brand to, to create those meaningful connections. It's a very competitive space. There's a number of brands with significant budgets, and we didn't want to feel like spam. We wanted to make those more personalized, deeper connections to drive better experiences and take have them take the actions we want them to take that will hopefully result in, in business results down the road. Um, and so we looked to IBM Accelerator, which we were introduced through our partnership with Lasso, to use their product, which is dynamic creative and dynamic creative optimization through AI to really allow us to, to serve the most personalized message at the right time to our target audience. Super. So it involved CMI, Lasso, IBM Watson, and IQVIA. Those yep. are all the partners in this yep. Uh, yep. It was a It was a first and foremost pilot with those partners. So obviously, as the media agency, we have a longstanding partnership with Lasso, who 
introduced us to the IBM crew and the product, and it was a it was a perfect fit for what we were trying to achieve. And to talk about how AI was used to personalize the outreach, I spoke with uh, IBM Watson's Sean Kearney to talk about how they switched up uh, everything from the language used in the messaging to the imagery uh, based on the artificial intelligence. By using AI, you can uh, look at more signals uh, than just contextual. So contextual is part of the soup, but it's not it's not the main thing. Um, and so uh, by, by doing that, we can change the way uh, we measure the campaigns. So as I mentioned on the panel, the purpose of, of Advertising Accelerator is to optimize the creative against the outcome that the brand is investing in. Like, how are they going to measure this uh, to support that this was a good investment for their brand? And so that's why we choose the individual KPIs um, and, and have the ability to optimize to that digital action. Okay, and basically you came up with, or the team came up with um, several different creative iterations um, and, and taglines and, and so forth, and you also married that with weather data. Talk, talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, so the setup is actually pretty awesome. Um, you know, if you've ever been in a traditional setting where you're you're building creative and you're you're in a, you're in a conference room for two or three days putting sticker sticky notes on the walls and you're creating if then this, that scenarios for who should see what tagline mm -hmm. and who should see what image. Uh, and that process is painstaking. It's also filled with human bias. You're making assumptions. So we don't do that. What we do is we, we, we get all the ingredients for the creative, we lay them out in templates, and we let the AI algorithm make the decision on which piece goes with, together best for each audience. And then we retrain the model with every single impression so it gets uh -huh. better over time. Right, so in real time, uh, you're starting off with a model, but then in real time, you're using the data to, to help the algorithm get smarter, if Absolutely, you will. like literally every time we serve an ad, we retrain based on what happened when that ad went out the door. Did the conversion happen or did it not happen? Next, I caught up with Kristen Waters at IQVIA to talk about why personalization is a challenge uh, for medical marketers. And, and that's frankly why this AI-driven effort uh, was so much more significant. Basically, having the specific content enables better personalization. Uh -huh. and that drives more engagement overall. With okay. AIM, the product is based on behavioral data from HCP behavior, uh, what they're researching contextually online. So when they're doing medical research, we understand the content topics that they're interested in. When that's layered on top of and can help be more, enable better targeting basically in the end. So with the response, to the various creative, then you can also learn from targeting that specific creative to the physician who's actively engaged, looking for information about that brand at that moment in time. So it's it's a layer on top of it to create even more omni-channel experiences that would make the content specific to the physician at the very moment that they're actually looking for that information. Mm -hmm. The content becomes more relevant and it ultimately is more timely in its delivery. Not just contextualization, but relevance. Exactly, okay. and the timeliness enables yeah. you to catch that physician before he's made a prescribing decision, which is the ultimate goal. Which is the really essence of omni-channel. Exactly. Not just multi-channel, but customization uh, depending on the channel that you're in. Not just spreading it exactly different regardless of channel exactly okay. and this enabled you as a, as a marketer to uh, enable certain trigger behaviors can you talk about that right exactly so when you're seeing this the data we're providing clients with the data the data then provides that ability to trigger that message at that time so within a day of that research behavior happening if you're seeing a specific physician researching a topic relevant to your brand they would be able to send a content specific to that topic. So whether it's dosing or efficacy, potentially patient information, um, 
therapeutic comparisons with competitors, and so you want to blunt that message with a specific branded message to enable them to make a better therapeutic choice for their patients, and that's really the ultimate goal. And finally, Matt Falcone over at Lasso talked about the KPIs that were used to measure the effectiveness of the campaign, as well as how it's being switched up uh, for its next iteration. I think the program just was a success across the board. As we mentioned, you know, the, the CTR metrics that we saw grow over the case of the campaign um, exceeded benchmarks by about 40 percent. But in addition to that, I think what's been really exciting is the tracking of on-site actions. So what are folks doing once they're clicking and getting to the page? Are they downloading a tear sheet? Where are they navigating? How much time are they spending there? And so the benchmarks against those KPIs were actually exceeded by over 150%. Um, So folks really engaging more with the program comparatively to um, a previously run initiative that was very similar in terms of targeting, but didn't really have this personalization uh, attached to it. Sure. And um, in addition to those KPIs, you're also able to glean a lot about the audience, right? Tell us about that. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, you you can learn a ton about the audience. And I think what is uh, really interesting as well, which is something that kind of we bring to the table in some of the next iterations of this, is two things. One, looking at gross metrics directly in the platform, meaning we can actually pull in clinical behavior of the individuals that we've delivered ads to to see deterministically, do we need to optimize to different tactics or to different target lists or to you know bring in different specialty groups? And then in addition to that, we can actually provide net measurement. So looking at a holdout group and really comparing against the folks that we've exposed versus a qualified group of individuals that we didn't to understand, are we targeting the right people? What is the net benefit and lift to this? Are there new prescribers, new prescriptions? What's the audience quality, et cetera? So really kind of understanding the profile of who we should be going after, the effectiveness of the targeting beyond some of those, you know, vanity media metrics. Um, like to impressions really, and so forth. Exactly. To really evolve the program forward. So are you able to determine uh, script lifts or outcomes? Yeah. So, I mean, impact on outcomes. We have a completely tag-based uh, measurement product built directly. That's into the Lasso's platform. proprietary technology. Exactly. Okay. Right. So, you can tag up uh, any buys that are outside of the Lasso platform, or for any of the media that's running directly in the platform. We've done that all in-house with our. We have our own identity graph. There's no outsourcing for the tagging or anything. Um, and so we're able to track all of those tactics separately in the platform, provide custom breakouts for all those different metrics I was talking about. And I think one of the key things as well is that the measurement itself is 100% deterministic. We're not doing any modeling. We're not projecting. doesn't always mean that there's statistical significance, but we're 100% deterministically telling you the performance and what we're seeing in market. And okay. so we've been very flexible with our customers to also provide Uh, different cuts or custom cuts based on really what they're trying to solve. Okay, great. Anything else you wanted to mention uh, about this uh, campaign? How it's uh, changing for the future? Maybe what's next? Yeah, I mean, I think think it's going to be a continued evolution of bringing together some of the different pieces in the stage. And by that, I mean thinking of the creative differently, thinking of the targeting differently, thinking of measurement differently, right? Like target lists to date have been stagnant. How do we bring in dynamically refreshed audiences based on some of the aim behavior, based on real-time prescribing behavior? How do we update the content of the ads in real time based on who's engaging and what they're engaging with? Then how do we measure that in a clinical way, right? And so I think the change is going to be a continued focus on really dynamically refreshing those three components 
to you know not have one program that runs over the course of a year uh, and you don't really bring in any optimizations. All right. Well, it's a really interesting look at how advertising in the pharma space is evolving. Thank you so much, Matt. I appreciate it. Thank you. And you can check out all the 40 Under 40 honorees and their profiles at mmm40under40.com. That's it for this week. The MMM Podcast is produced by Bill Fitzpatrick, Gordon Failer, Lesha Bushak, and Jack O'Brien. Our theme music is by Sizzy M. Sone. Rate, review, and follow every episode wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes out every week. And be sure to check out our website, mmm-online.com, for the top news stories in pharma marketing. 